Hey, 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 good to see you. Uh, go ahead, get your Bibles and open to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 9. Um, so we're just basically going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, if you're wondering where Nate is and if you've never been here before, uh, let me just introduce myself to you. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Nate uh, is much taller than I am, uh, and he is our uh, full-time pastor that normally leads us in this time, and we usually we love to sit under uh, his teaching. Uh, this weekend, uh, he and his whole family are gone to a retreat for their daughter, Hope. Um, uh, if you've never met Hope, that's... Uh, one of their many children uh, that has uh, one of their many children, she has special needs. I don't want to imply that all of his children have have special needs, and so they're at a special camp that can welcome Hope and spend time with her, and it's kind of like a respite for the whole family. A really good time of rest for Nate and his family. So we're very glad that they can be there this weekend. Please pray for them that they come back rejuvenated and encouraged. Um, and uh, we'll be happy to see them again next week. But today you're stuck with me, so. Uh, if you haven't yet, get that Bible out, open it to Luke chapter 9. And so where we're at today, I'm sure that every person in this room, regardless of how old you are, you've already had encounters in your life where um, they were either an event or a, an entire season of your life that was really challenging, that was really difficult. Um, but it's only in hindsight, like moving forward and now you're later in life, um, that you see that that time, whatever it was, whatever season of life, whatever event it was, actually worked to prepare you for something else that was coming, something that was difficult, a challenge or a lesson learned. And you're actually looking back on things really glad that you learned that lesson when you did because to try and learn it now would be that much harder. We've all had times like that, regardless of your age. You've had a time like that, I guarantee it. Today, what we're going to look at in Luke 9, starting in verse 51, is kind of an experience like this for the disciples. Uh, Jesus had a lot of disciples. There was a smaller group of disciples, the 12, who followed him very closely. And they had an experience where they learned a hard lesson uh, that we're looking at today. Uh, but in God's providence, we have the bigger picture. We have... We have the walk that they have with Christ beyond Luke chapter 9, and we're able to look ahead and see how what happened here prepares them for what's going to happen the rest of their lives. And so uh, Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to be starting in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the he that's referenced here is Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Uh, this is one of those passages of Scripture that if you're not careful, you can just kind of read over, glance over. It doesn't really seem like there's a lot happening here. There's just a very brief exchange. They're just kind of passing through this town, and Jesus doesn't really say much to them. Um, it's a little surprising that they try to call fire down from heaven. That's interesting, but 
if we're not careful, we just kind of breeze over this, and uh, we were tempted to do that, but really, I think what you're going to see today is that there's an extremely valuable lesson that the disciples learned, like I said, but also for us to learn today, and um, the only thing that is better than learning a hard lesson early in life is being able to learn a life lesson not from your mistakes, but from other people's mistakes, and uh, that's always a huge blessing when you can do that. And I hope that that is what we are going to be able to do today. And so you might have noticed that this point is kind of a transition point in the book of Luke when he says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Uh, The last several weeks in the book of Luke, what we've been talking about has been centered around kind of this singular event where Jesus took only three of his disciples up on a mountain and he was transfigured before them. And like a little blip, a little bitty piece of his true glory as God was revealed to his disciples. And they got to see who he truly was. And so there was a lot of things that happened around that. But this marks a a very big transition point in the book of Luke. Up until this time, Jesus has prophesied about something that's going to happen to him, to his disciples. He's told them, I'm going to die. He's told them, I'm going to suffer for your sake. He's told them he's going to be a sacrifice. He's looked forward to all of these things. But now the time's here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. That word taken up commentators argue about what that means it could mean he's taken up as in put up on a cross could mean he's taken up out of the ground as in like his resurrection from the dead or it could mean his being taken up as in like the ascension when he is with his disciples and he is taken into heaven by God it says that he literally just floats away into the clouds it sounds crazy but he does and then there's angels and they say he's coming back the same way he left right it could mean any of those things but the true point here to get that we can't really see in our language that is present in the original language which was greek if you look at this and i don't read greek okay so don't think i'm that awesome i don't but i read a commentary and it's very helpful and it said this um but um but what you see present in the language in the original greek is the when it talking about When the days drew near for him, it's talking about like for him to be taken up is coming to fulfillment. It's kind of the way the phrase works in that. It's that what he's been talking about, his his being taken up is approaching. That time he's been talking about is coming to a fulfillment. Jesus has come to this earth and he's been doing this ministry with his disciples and he's been doing a lot of different things and we have just been like when you read the gospel of Luke it just seems like it's bits and pieces of a puzzle and it's hard to put together but here we see a glimpse of what the full picture looks like Jesus came to this earth to fulfill one mission and that was to die on a cross to be resurrected from the dead and redeem us, and reconcile us to God. That was his mission that he was sent here to do. And here we see the time has now come for that to be fulfilled. Like, start Jesus on his journey to where he needs to be. And so since this has started, it says that he set his face to Jerusalem. It's just a phrase that says that he's determined He's a man on a mission. He knows what he needs to do. And so he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And that's where he goes. So he starts making that journey. And this is the beginning of that journey that we see. And 
Uh, understand a little bit of the geography here. Jesus has been doing ministry up in an area called Galilee. So that's kind of like up here in the north. But he set his face towards Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem from where he was was south. And he had to get south. So he started traveling south. But going south, there's this region in the middle called Samaria that you ha either have to go through or you have to go around. We'll talk about that in a minute. That you have to go through or go around. And so he starts making that journey. It's not a straight beeline. It's not as the crow flies, as my wife would say. But it is, it is kind of bebopping along, like making several stops along the way. Okay, we're only in chapter 9. We've got several chapters to go. And so we, he starts this journey, and the first place they stop, or at least try to stop, is in this town of Samaritans, these people that live in this little region here. And Jesus has sent his disciples ahead of him. This is part of the normal pattern of how Jesus functions. You're, we're going to become very familiar with this. Jesus sends his disciples to a town, and it might be for various reasons. Like sometimes Jesus just sends his disciples to a town to literally prepare the place that they're going to stay. Like, look, just go into a town, find a place for us to stay. Like when he actually gets to Jerusalem, he's going to send them into a place just to get the, the upper room ready for where they're going to celebrate the Passover together. Nothing super spiritual about it. It's like, dude, guys, just go get us a hotel place, all right? Just go get us a hotel room. Other times he does send them proclaiming the message, kind of heralding, like letting people know, like, hey, look, Jesus is going to be coming to your town soon. Here's a little preview of what he's going to say to you. And they do that. But all we know is that in this sense, he, they've just been sent to this town. And so out of obedience, they go to this town. And when Jesus gets there, he is not met with a, with a, a hotel room and a warm meal hot shower. Instead, the literally the entire town rejects him. Says, you're not welcome here. But not only does it reject him, we actually get a clue about why they rejected him. So look with me. Oh, my page turned. Look with me at verse 53. It says, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. It is specifically because Jesus was going to Jerusalem. It's specifically because everything that that meant, that Jesus and his followers were Jews, they were going to Jerusalem, this place that they believed was a place of worship where God resided in the temple. The time of the Passover is drawing near, and here's this group of Jews going down to Jerusalem. And this town of Samaritan says, you're not welcome here, group of Jews, leave. That might seem really weird, really strange, but to, you've got to, if you actually understand a little bit about the historical context of these two groups, the Samaritans and the Jews, it actually becomes not just understandable, but kind of expected that this would be their response. So without boring you, a little bit of history about this group of Samaritans. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, right, and God sent Moses, you remember this story, burning bush, sends him ten plagues, gone. And cross the Red Sea, and they go through, right? And eventually, through a lot of different things, God's people enter the promised land, okay? And God, among many other things, told them something. He said, do not marry the people of this land. Do not intermarry with these people. Instead, marry among yourselves. Stay among yourselves. The reason for that is not because God was racist and he didn't want this one race of people to mix with this other. That's not what God is, right? It was simply because the reason God gave was that if you intermarry with these other people, you will be drawn away to worship false gods. You will marry them and then you will worship their gods. 
and that's exactly what happened. In this region of Samaria, the people that went there, they intermarried with the people of the lands, and lo and behold, what God said would happen, happened. That happens a lot with God, doesn't it? What he says will happen, happens. And they start worshiping false gods. And so you have, and that, that happened hundreds of years ago at this point in Luke 9. And so you have hundreds of years of this happening, of worshiping false gods, and so now you have several different dynamics that are going on. Let me just tell you about three of them. First of all, there was social prejudice that existed among these two groups of people. Jews kind of viewed Samaritans as corrupted half-breeds of people. They were detested, despised. They no longer had their pure Jewish heritage from the Lord. And so they were treated with contempt and hatred. And so there was this prejudice. And much of what a Jew would have known about a Samaritan wasn't even because they knew Samaritans. It was just because they were told things about Samaritans. Sounds like politics in the United States, does it not? It sounds like when you, know, when you have two different major political parties of conservatives and liberals, how many of them actually know one another and are actually able to have conversations? Instead, what you have is just a, two groups of people that assume a bunch of stuff about one another, and that leads to all kinds of um, you know, big phrases that are just thrown around. When you hear that somebody is of this political persuasion, it makes you think, well, they must like this and do this and be like that, and oh, they must like this and do this and be like that, when in fact you don't ever actually take a chance to get to know them. That's called prejudice. And that was here among these groups of people. But there wasn't just social prejudice. There was cultural isolation. These two groups literally did not mix. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 9, goes to a well to get a drink of water. There's a Samaritan woman there. Jesus asked her for a drink of water. Listen to her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria. And then John adds like this in parentheses, this little interpretive note to make sure you understand what she was trying to say. And he says this, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. These people did not mix. They do not get together. They do not go to the same parties. They don't have the same group of friends. They don't read the same books. They don't watch the same movies. They don't listen to the same music. They don't go to the same church. referenced earlier, the way to get from Galilee to Jerusalem is either to go straight through it or around it. Oftentimes, Jews would add miles to their journey and not go through Samaria, but go around it instead. That would be like you needing to go to the Louisville airport to catch a flight or to pick somebody up from a flight, but instead of driving straight up 65 from Shepherdsville, you drive all the way over 44 get on Bardstown Road in Mount Washington, go north to the Gene Snyder, take the Gene Snyder, go back over to 65, and then go up to the airport just because you hate the people that live in Brooks. That's what it would be like. You'd add 30 minutes plus to your journey. I hope nobody here lives in Brooks because I do that every time. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. But that's essentially what was happening. I mean, they would willingly add this because they did not want to mix with this group of people. They're just parts of town that you don't go to. They're not pleasant. But not only were there social prejudices, not only were there cultural isolation, there were really 
theological differences. The theological differences between these two groups were real. For instance, the Jews used the whole Old Testament. The Samaritans only used the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, we call it, the one that Moses wrote. But not only that, the Samaritans believed that the true place of worship for the people of God was a place in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. The Jews believed it was Mount Zion in Jerusalem where the temple was, where Jesus was going. There were real theological differences between these two groups of people. Considering though just those three things, like I said, it's not, it's not really surprising that Jesus wasn't welcome among these group of people and that his followers weren't welcome among these group of people. There's no surprise here. And it actually makes you think, like, man, I've got to give the disciples some credit for trying. I mean, can you imagine going into a group of people that are filled with social prejudice? Can you imagine what it would have been like for the disciples to have to restrain their own social prejudice in order to go where their Savior had called them to go? Can you imagine the cultural barriers that had to be broken down? Two groups of people that never interacted. They, they had to not worry about what the outside world was thinking about them if they were going to be obedient to their call to Christ to go to a town where Jesus told them to go. I have never anticipated, a com- I've never experienced more anxiety about a conversation that I was anticipating with somebody than the conversation where I knew the person I had to talk to, I already know that they don't believe what I believe. I already know that they think differently than I do. I already know what their response is going to be. But I know that Jesus has called me to share with them what the gospel is. Those are the conversations that are often the hardest where you know you're walking into a firestorm. So you got to give them a little credit. They did what their Savior told them to do. Listen, as Christians, Jesus regularly, regularly sends us into uncomfortable situations. A comfortable Christian is an oxymoron. It shouldn't exist. Our mission is to take the gospel to other people. And that is a mission that crosses cultural, social, racial, economic, theological and physical barriers. We do not allow these barriers to stand in our lives. And so we got to give them a little credit. They do what they do, but the Samaritans do what they do, and they reject them. Look again at verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, that escalated quickly, right? It's like his disciples are like so offended that they can't stay in this town that they're like, you want fire from heaven, Jesus? We can do that. Sodom and Gomorrah, their butts, right? That's what happened. They're calling for a sense of cataclysmic judgment on these people. They want them destroyed, consumed by fire. They want judgment early for these people. And Jesus' response is to simply turn around and rebuke them and say, no, let's just keep moving, guys. And they, and they left. 
why was there a disconnect between what Jesus wanted and what the disciples wanted here? What was the change? Why weren't they lining up? I wonder. Because in other places in Scripture, this same kind of rejection of Christ, Jesus himself speaks very harshly towards. And he tells them that it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on their day than for this town. In John 3.17, Jesus says this to his disciples. God did not send his son into the world. I'm sorry, he didn't say this to his disciples, but he said this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was not the mission of Jesus to come to the world to bring it to an early judgment. It was the mission of Christ to come and reconcile people to himself, to show them mercy and grace with patience and kindness and understanding. That was his mission. Jesus, like I said, has very strong words for people that reject him. But God has appointed a day for judgment. And that day is not today. He has appointed a time. And we, as his followers, will boldly and passionately and carefully proclaim to the world that there is a day coming. But it is not our job to try and bring that day about today. Our job is to bring them to Christ in mercy. 2 Peter 2, 9, we hear what God's heart is for sinners. God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why did Jesus not allow his disciples to judge these people and to bring fire from heaven on them? Because he did not desire for them to perish. There is no reason to think that just a few years from now, when Jesus is in heaven and when the disciples have the Holy Spirit and they scatter preaching the gospel, there's no reason to think that these same group of Samaritans would one day later repent. If you don't know who Jim Elliot is and you've never heard his story, you need to. They were missionaries to the Aka Indians, him and like four other guys. There were five families that went, and they went to these Indians that are in South America and Ecuador, and they went to go preach the gospel to them. All of the men were murdered by the Indians. Later on, down the road, one of the people, one of the Indians that was involved in killing this group of missionaries became believer and were leading them spiritually. This, the same group of Indians that once murdered these missionaries was, was now followers of Christ. You want to know why? Because the other people that were with the missionaries, their wives, their families, continued to try and reach them with the gospel. A wise fisherman never only fishes one hole once. You always go twice or three times even because some days the fishing just isn't good. But if you fish it once and then just pass it over, listen, you've missed an opportunity. If we judge people, if we seek their judgment, as soon as they reject Christ, we will never reach anyone with the gospel. Who here accepted Christ into your heart the first time you heard about the gospel? Probably nobody. I didn't. I had to hear it hundreds of times, thousands of times before I accepted Christ. 
The issue that's going on here is that there was a disconnect between the heart of Christ for a lost world and the heart that his disciples had for them. The lesson that the disciples needed to learn was how to be rejected by the world. They had followed Christ's orders to a T. They did what they were supposed to do. They presented it to a lost world, and it was rejected. They were not prepared for this kind of rejection. And because of that, their hearts hardened, and they wanted them judged. Jesus said, no, that's not what you do here. That's not how you do this. This is a lesson the disciples needed to learn because Jesus was about to send them on an even bigger mission, not to go to one town, but to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And let me tell you, they lived lives of rejection. The message was rejected often and by many different people. They were beaten. They were tortured. Many of them were martyred. Some of them were exiled away. They experienced lives of suffering. And this was an opportunity for them to learn that lesson on a small scale so that they would be prepared to take the message of the gospel and to suffer for Christ's name in a bigger context. They needed to learn how to take rejection well. Mercy Hill, if we are going to be an effective church in this county, in this city, and if you're going to learn to be an effective Christian in your workplace, in your families, in your neighborhoods, you're going to need to learn how to be rejected by people. It's one of the most valuable lessons you can learn is how to be rejected. Because let me tell you this, if you do not learn how to be rejected well by this world, you are not going to be prepared for the, big, for the greater calling that God is calling you to. There are two major things I think can happen to you if you do not learn how to take rejection well. Number one, if you do not learn how to take rejection well, you would develop a hardened, calloused heart towards this world. This world is filled with people that will hate the message that you bring them. Jesus makes us a promise in John chapter 15 that this world will hate us because it first hated him. And if we are followers of him, it will therefore hate us. You've got to be prepared for that. This world will slander you. They will accuse you. They will treat you unfairly. In your lifetime, you will witness Horrible, awful things being done. You will witness abuse, neglect. You will witness people that live selfish lives that are motivated by greed. You will witness people neglect their families and let them rot. You will watch people do awful, awful things. We are in a peculiar scenario where Jesus has called us to absolutely detest sin. He has called us to holiness and to love God. You cannot love God and sin. We are called to hate that, but we're in a peculiar scenario where you've heard this before. We hate sin and what? Love the sinner. You can't love sinners if your heart has been hardened. As you see these awful things happen in the world, listen, there are things that as a Christian you should hate. You should hate it when you witness people living selfish lives that are all about them. You should hate it when you hear about abortions happening. 
You should absolutely hate it when you hear that someone is being abused. You should hate it when you witness God being dishonored among a group of people. You should hate that. But if you are not careful, your bitterness will build and a hatred will overcome you that leads your heart to disconnect from Christ's. This is a challenge we face, church, of having a hard heart towards sinners in a lost world. We cannot allow our hearts to become calloused and hardened to where we hate both sin and the sinner. James was right when he said that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's exactly what the disciples were trying to do. They were trying to bring about what they saw as justice. But the problem is they are not the right person to bring about that justice. God is. Do not let your heart be hardened. I think there are a few things you can do to guard that from happening in your life when you witness these things. I mean, look, there are people in your life that you will just develop a hard heart to. So how do you guard against that? I have two things. First, I think that if you develop and you cultivate a right view of this world and who these people are, in Isaiah 61, 1, you don't need to turn there, but it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then listen to this. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Our world, these lost sinners, are bound in prison. They are imprisoned under their own lostness and love of sin. And Christ has come not to keep them in their prison until judgment day, but to set them free. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They are not only in prison, they're blind. They don't see. They can't. They don't understand. They have ears, yet they don't hear. They have eyes, yet they don't see. They don't know. Even Jesus on the cross, as he is being murdered by people, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. You can't expect lost people to act like saved people. Have a good knowledge that they're lost, that they're blind, they're in bondage. They're slaves. This first thing. Second thing is the kind of love that this takes to continue to love and not develop a hard heart, it takes God's supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so it might sound simple, but you've got to pray. You've got to ask God, God, soften my heart for these people. God, break my heart. Ask God for a burden for the lost, a love for the persecutor, and a patience towards sinners. If we don't learn how to take rejection well, we will either develop a hard heart. That was the first one. And now the second one is this. You'll either develop a hard heart or you will lose confidence in our message. We don't see that present here in this text, but I think it's very relevant for us to look at this today. Well, here's what I mean by lose confidence. It is very easy in our productivity-addicted culture to be driven by numbers and driven by results. 
to the point where if we go out and we proclaim our message just like Jesus has told us to in the way that he's told us to in its fullness, yet we don't see results happening, we'll begin to ask the question, why isn't it working? Why isn't our church growing in number? Why don't we have more people here? Why, aren't, why isn't our budget getting bigger? All these things. Why isn't it working? Listen, there is a time and a place to evaluate methods and to improve systems. But listen, an eroded confidence in the power of God's word will lead us to an overactive pragmatism that gives itself over to what works. We'll begin approaching ministry. We'll, we'll begin approaching church by asking the question, what will work? What will draw a crowd? What will increase membership? What will increase our budget? We will give ourselves over to pragmatism. Pragmatism will lead you to one of two things. So I know I've got like sub point, point here, point there, point there, but I'm trying to be organized for you. That kind of thinking, a loss of confidence in the message that God has given us will lead to us either taking away from that message or adding to that message. We will take away from the message in the sense that maybe people aren't coming and it's not working because it's not palatable for people. We've got we've to water it down a little bit or maybe we've even got to take parts out of it that are a little bitter to the taste. And if you take that out, more people will eat it and they'll enjoy it more and, they're still, and they'll stick around longer. The problem is when you take it out, you, you sabotage the foundation of the whole thing and it falls away. A timely example of this, and I say this with as much humility as I can because it involves real people. There's a leader uh, in the church, um, kind of global or at least American church, that is very respected and followed by a lot. The guy's name is Andy Stanley. I don't know if you know who Andy Stanley is or not, but um, Andy Stanley is a very famous pastor uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And Andy uh, has been widely regarded by a lot of Christians as a very gifted communicator, a very helpful pastor in many things, especially with regards to leadership and things like that. But Andy's recently come out with a book called Unhitched. And this book, Unhitched, is all about how Christians need to unhitch themselves. In, or, in, in other words, like a truck and a trailer, disconnect from the Old Testament. And his argument through the whole book is that we need to disconnect from the Old Testament because we, in a lost world, a lot of the objections we receive from this lost world are coming from problems that they have, not with Jesus and not with the resurrection and not with his disciples and followers, but it's a problem with the God of the Old Testament as if it's a different God. And so he says, if you unhitch from that and you leave that, now we have a message that is more palatable for these people and they'll follow Christ because it's not based on the Old Testament. It's not based on prophecies. It's not based on God's word. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. The problem is the work of Jesus is entirely based on the prophecy of the Old Testament. His authority is found in the fullness of scripture, not in just one part of it. Listen to me. Any church that has tried to take away from the message the parts of it that are not easy to swallow has slowly faded away because you have no foundation. It's happened to every church. It's happened to every denomination that falls into this is what's called theological liberalism. It's not political liberalism. It's something totally different. 
That happens when you take away. But then there's a danger of adding to the message of the gospel. What do you get when you add to the message of the gospel? Nolan uh, is now like two years in a month, two years, two months old, getting around that age. And um, for, we think it's like a texture thing, but like he just won't eat grilled chicken unless you give him ketchup with it. Um, and, uh, and so the thing is, our goal is not to have him eat ketchup. It's that he would eat his chicken and get protein and grow and be strong because we don't want to get beat up in school because he's probably going to end up going to the public schools. Um, you know, we, we want him to be strong. And, uh, and, but he won't eat it without ketchup, so we give him ketchup. The ketchup is not the substance of the thing. The ketchup has like very little nutritional value. It's not the focus. Like our goal is to get him to have the substance of the thing. The, the chicken. And so we give it to him. It's an add-on. We add it to it in order for him to eat the thing that is not good to him. And if we're not careful, we adopt the same kind of mentality when it comes to our church. We try to add programs. We try to make sure there are fun ministries for people to be a part of. We try to make sure that there are fun activities. We try to make sure that there's the best music possible for people to come in so that when they come in, they love it. And that's why they're here. So what's the problem with that, though? Like, what's wrong with having great ministries? What's wrong with having awesome music? What's wrong with having coffee and donuts in the morning? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with it. Parents, what happens when you take away the ketchup? They won't eat the chicken. And you eventually you realize, and all this time while they've been eating their chicken, and you finally think it's time where you can take the ketchup away, they never actually started liking the substance of the thing. Sometimes we fall into a mentality where we can draw people in with great programs and awesome things and fantastic community where they will feel welcome and loved and this and that and the other, which those things are great, and we do try to do those here. But we try to view those things as that's what's drawing them in. And while they're in here, while they're in this pool, we'll get them with the gospel. And they'll stay. They'll be, and they'll love Christ. And they'll live lives of disciples of following Jesus. But what happens when we take away the ketchup? What happens when the program disintegrates for a time? Whoop. We find out that they never actually liked the chicken. Sometimes if Alicia and I are not careful, we'll look down at Nolan's plate and all he's done is taken a piece of chicken, scooped up some ketchup, and got some more, and he'll just do that. And we'll look down and there's a plate full of chicken with no ketchup. Listen, this one is really hard for me to say to you as a church, as your pastor, because the question comes, what's wrong with those programs? What's wrong with coffee and donuts back there? Look, nothing's wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. What happens, though, is when you begin to operate as if you can't reach people without those things, that reveals that you have lost confidence in the substance of the thing. When you think that the only way we can reach people is to have awesome programs, awesome music, awesome food back there, awesome community groups, and you think that's how we reach the world, you've lost the substance of the thing. This can creep into our church so easily. 
So there's nothing wrong with those things. We just got to be very careful. We don't lose our confidence in the message of the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. We've got to learn how to take rejection well as a church because it's coming. Everyone that desires to live a faithful life in Christ will be persecuted. You will be rejected for the message of the gospel that you bring to people. So how is it that you take rejection well? How do we do this? Three quick things. Number one, you need to be prepared for the possibility. I very much think that the purpose of this encounter that Jesus had for his disciples was to let them know and to prepare them for a larger scale of rejection that was coming in their lives. My prayer today is that we can learn from somebody else's mistake and not harden our hearts towards a lost world and not give ourselves over to pragmatism to do what works, but rather that we can expect this rejection to come and to trust God Keep our confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the power of God's word that is proclaimed in the people's lives. They will hear it and their hearts will be transformed. In the very next chapter, one of the things we get to look at in chapter 10 is Jesus promised to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. It is plentiful. People will respond to the message of the gospel positively. But we've got to be willing to be rejected. And as we are willing to be rejected, we've got to trust God that he knows what he's doing, that the harvest is, in fact, plentiful. And then the third thing I would say we can do to be prepared to be rejected well. I love the way this passage ends. Look at the last verse with me. Verse 56. And they went on to another village. Just keep going. Take the rejection, let it roll off of you, and go on to the next village. Keep going. Just because you're rejected once, twice, three times, ten times, a hundred times, don't stop. Just go on to the next village. Let's pray. God, thank you for all of the grace you have shown us by giving us this passage, Lord, to learn to be prepared to be rejected by a lost and a dying world, God. My prayer for our church right now, God, is that you would keep our hearts soft towards a world that is in bondage and enslaved to its sin, that is blind to spiritual truth. Lord, help us not develop a hatred that seeks an early judgment for them, but God, let us adopt a heart of Christ that wants them so desperately to experience the mercy of God. Lord, help us not give ourselves over to pragmatism, to what works, Lord, but instead let us be wise and faithful people of your word to trust you and love you despite the rejection. And God, that we would just move on to the next town and keep going. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.